So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, <clears throat> we are in Luke chapter 9. And uh, if you're using the black Bibles that are provided, that's on page 1031. A, uh, a pastor friend of mine recalled to me a story. Uh, he, had, he had an opportunity one time to, uh, to get away for about, for about a week of just prayer and uh, seeking God and uh, time of planning and, and preparation. <clears throat> Probably one of the things he told me that was heaviest on his heart at the time was his relationship with his then teenage son. Uh, it was strained. Uh, at best, uh, it seemed the only way that they knew how to communicate with each other was through arguing or yelling or uh, accusing. Uh, he knew that he himself was as much to blame for the strain in their relationship as, as his son. And, uh, and so a lot of what he was praying for was just his relationship. And uh, he, at the end of the week, he felt very much refreshed. It felt like very much a, just a great time uh, in God's Word, in God's presence. There was a real sense that God had uh, shown up in a way that just was an encouragement to him. And when he got home uh, that evening, his wife and that uh, particular son were both in the kitchen when he walked in. And his son said something. It was unkind. It was unnecessary. And, uh, and it set him off. And he exploded at his son in anger. And his son turned and walked out of the kitchen. And he heard him mumbling, well, that didn't take maybe two weeks next time. So uh, has that ever happened to you? You go away, you get away, maybe it's a retreat, maybe it's a conference, maybe you get away alone, maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's a group of friends, but while you're away, it's amazing the presence of God that you experience, the delight you have, like you are so refreshed, you so, you, you remember your first love, like uh, the writer of Revelation says, uh, and you're just, you're reminded of all the gospel truths and it lasts almost five minutes into the time you get home. And then you, you come back to reality, and you are, not, you are not on the mountain anymore. Uh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we follow Jesus and his three closest disciples, and they come down off the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, and back into the valley of just life among fallen people. <clears throat> so Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out. It convulses him so that he, he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, 
Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about his saying. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So I don't know if you realize this or not, but the whole idea of mountaintop experience or coming down off the mountain uh, comes from the Bible. Um, Not just this passage, but even in the Old Testament, there's often these mountaintop experiences. And we talked about it a little bit last week when we talked about how Moses and Elijah were the ones that came to encourage and to speak to Jesus about his uh, pending crucifixion. But, uh, you know, Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai and he meets with God and he comes down off the mountain to witness God's people bowing to a golden calf that they had just made. And Elijah, he goes up onto Mount Carmel, and God defeats, as it were, the, the false gods of Baal, and, and, and there's just great mountaintop experience, but he comes down, and he runs away like a frightened dog because uh, Queen Jezebel threatens his life. Uh, Jesus has just been up on the mountain, and the Father, God the Father, has has as it were, he has like pulled back the curtain and revealed not Jesus reflecting the glory of God, but Jesus emanating. Jesus in the, Jesus is the glory of God. He is God himself, full of glory. And Peter and James and John get to witness this and, uh, and God has spoken. The father has spoken over Jesus. This is my son, the chosen one, listen to him. And uh, Moses and Elijah show up. They're encouraging Jesus about his coming exodus, about his coming crucifixion. It's all, it's all so wonderful that Peter doesn't even want it to end. Like, that's one of the reasons Peter suggests, hey, let's build some tents up here. Let's build some booths. Jesus, why don't you stay here? We don't have to Let's stop this silly talk you were mentioning last week about being handed over and about death and, and, and rejection. No, this is, this is the kind of Messiah we were thinking of. You glowing with glory. This is, this is what we need. And we'd love to roll our eyes at Peter, wouldn't we? We'd love to just be like, oh, Peter. The problem is Peter is just too uh, darned human. He's just too much like us. Uh, I was speaking with a young woman once, young woman who was, they were 
recent into their marriage, not super recent, so it was long enough in that she would say a statement like this, and you'll understand. But she said, uh, I'm, I'm a better Christian, like when I'm away from my husband. Like if I can get away on my own, if I can, if I can just go and have like just private time, I'm a much strong, I'm much, I'm a much better Christian than I am when I'm with my husband. And my first thought was, well, I'm sure he is too, but I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't, I didn't say it. It's just, I'm human too. I have these thoughts. Uh, but I did uh, point out that like, that's, that, that's not really true. Like all of us can fool ourselves into thinking we're much holier when we remove all of the things around us that remind us of how fallen we are and that remind us of what our idols are. It's way easier not to yell at my wife when she's 100 miles away. That's, I mean, that's just, that's, that doesn't make me holier. It just means I missed it. I don't have the opportunity to sin. Uh, and so, you know, so we understand Peter thinking like, hey, let's try to bottle this. Let's capture this. Let's stay here in this awesome moment. But that's not the point of those mountaintop experiences, even for us. That's not the point. Like, the point is not the conference. The whole point of the conference was to encourage you and give you some tools and remind you of the gospel so that you can go back to the valley where life actually happens and you can remember that Jesus is with you and that you can follow him and you can trust him. And so uh, that is really what we see here. Jesus and his three disciples coming back down off the mountain, down into the valley. Uh, if, they, if they had a playlist on their way back, I mean, it wouldn't be an MP3 because it was a lot earlier than that, so it would have been a Walkman. Uh, but... Uh, I'm sure they would have repeated often, soul to souls, back to life, back to reality, uh, which I, obviously they wouldn't have, but that's the title of the sermon, back to life, back to reality, because what we have here is Jesus coming back. He's coming down off the mountain. He has to come back to the faithless and twisted, back to the desperate and oppressed, back to the reasons the reason he came to earth. And so let's look first at Jesus coming back to the faithless and twisted. Uh, this account, again, it, it follows the transfiguration in Matthew and Mark and Luke. All three of them record the transfiguration. All three of them record this event that happens right after it. Uh, Luke's is the shortest, interestingly. Uh, he cuts a lot of details out. Uh, he uh, he cuts out the conversation that Jesus has with the Father over the Father's uh, weak faith. He cuts out the conversation Jesus has with the disciples later, wondering why on earth they couldn't cast this demon out. The focus in Luke is really intentionally, entirely on Jesus. We've just witnessed the deity of Christ on display. We've just heard the Father pronounce the deity of Christ, and now we see the deity of Christ in action. We see the power of God. We see Jesus himself having power over the demons, over evil, over wickedness. But before we can see Jesus in action, we're exposed sort of to 
to Jesus in frustration, aren't we? It's a weird, it's a little disheartening, Jesus's response. They've, they've come down off the mountain. There's a crowd. A man comes running to Jesus. He's shouting to get Jesus's attention. And in verse 38 to 40, he says, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him alone. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, we'll come back to the Father and the Son, but first I want to look at Jesus' response. In verse 41, he says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. And first we have to figure out, okay, who is Jesus talking to? And at first you think, well, is it the Father? And we can rule that out pretty quickly. Like, that's not how Jesus treats hurting people, ever. Like, Jesus is compassionate. It's not the Father that he's frustrated with, that he calls a faithless, twisted generation. Now, in other passages later, he'll, he'll address the Father's weak faith, but the Father has faith enough to bring his Son to Jesus. He just doesn't know if Jesus can actually do anything, but that's a different thing altogether. He's talking about a a faithless, twisted generation. It could just be that he's talking about the, the, the large crowds, but I think he's talking to his disciples because the last thing that the father says, the, the boy's father says, is, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not help. Why? Why could they not help? especially in the context of chapter 9, where chapter 9 begins, like verse 1 of chapter 9 says, and so Jesus gave power to the apostles and sent them out to heal and to cast out demons. It's, it's, he has empowered them to do these things, that he's, he's in the process of preparing them and sending them to be his representatives, and in that, he is giving them the power to do the very things that this father has asked them to do. It says in verse 8, so they went through all the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they have this ability, or had this ability, but they seem to have forgotten they seem to have, like, Jesus is off doing who knows what, and their faith is weak. Now, this is not the first time uh, that Jesus kind of calls out his disciples. Like, he's not, you know, Jesus is not against using strong language when strong language is necessary. In Matthew 8, he says to his disciples, O you of little faith, why are you afraid? In, in Luke 8, he says to his disciples, where is your faith? In Luke 24, he'll say to two of his disciples, not apostles, but two other disciples, he'll say, oh, foolish ones, so slow of heart to believe. And then probably the most famous and the most harsh, he says to Peter. Do you remember? He says to Peter once, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. Imagine uh, 
have a strong conversation with your spouse or a friend even. Let's just go friend. Jesus is his friend. Say, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Those Those are strong words, especially considering they are right after he said, Peter, you are the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. And then two seconds later, he's like, Peter, you get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. You are not thinking about things of heaven. You are thinking about the things of earth. Uh, Jesus, he's a, I mean, we have to hear these harsh things. We have to recognize that sometimes our faith is super weak. Sometimes we do not trust God. We do not believe Him. And He has said, like, I have given you the power. I've given you everything you need to face everything I bring your way. And we go into it and we're like, well, almost everything I need. I also need, you know, my wit and I need my plans and I need, and I need my security. And, and we, we, we stop believing that Jesus is still working and working through us. Is it is it harsh that he calls his disciples faithless and twisted? Well, yeah. That doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, when a doctor tells you, listen, you need to change your habits. You need to drink less of that and more of that. You need to eat less of that and more of that. And you need to do less of sitting there and more of walking there. Is it harsh? Yes. Is it actually loving? Is it actually compassionate? I mean, do you want a doctor who's like, yeah, you're fine. I mean, you're going to die pretty soon, but you're fine. You want a doctor who says, hey, things are broken. You need to fix them. Jesus says, you are faithless and twisted. Because, because when you stop trusting Jesus, when you stop taking him at his word, when you stop believing what he says about you and about himself, your life begins to get all twisted. Also, when your life, the more twisted and perverse your life gets, the less you trust and believe Jesus. It's this this cycle, like our, our faithlessness leads to twistedness, and our twistedness leads to faithlessness. And we need someone loving enough to point it out, to say, hey, you are living a faithless and twisted life right now. You need, you need deliverance. You need to remember what I've told you. Jesus comes back to faithless and twisted. But he also comes back to the, to the desperate and oppressed. Let's go back to the father and son. Uh, did you notice the father's request of Jesus? This, by the way, is why I, I know that it's not the father that Jesus is frustrated with. What does he ask for? He says, look at my son. This father knows that if Jesus will just look, his compassion will take over. He doesn't even have to ask him to heal his son. Just look at him. Just look at him, Jesus. There's no 
aspect of this boy's life that isn't infected and affected by the wickedness of this demon. It seizes him and he cries out in pain, in anguish, in fear. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. I mean, he is, he is physically impaired. He is mentally and, and psychologically and emotionally impaired. It is, it's, he, it tells us that it's, it seeks to shatter and break him. And that it hardly leaves him alone. There's, like, there's no aspect of this boy's life that isn't ruined by the presence of this wickedness. There's no, there's no reprieve. There's no rest. It's always there oppressing him, twisting him, harming him, causing him to cry out, causing him to phone, trying to break him. And there is only one possibility of hope that Jesus will have compassion. The, de- the demon tries one last time even to exercise its dominion over the boy, and, and yet Jesus rebukes the demon, and it's immediately gone. The boy's life is changed forever by Jesus' compassion. And Jesus gives the boy back to his father. The crowd is moved by the majesty of God. It's not necessarily that the crowd suddenly sees that Jesus is God, but they see that the majesty of God working through what they think of as this man, Jesus. But they're still amazed at the majesty of God. Could you imagine if the father had not brought his son to Jesus? If he did not even have a just a a seed of faith that perhaps Jesus, if he just looks at him, will have compassion for him. I mean, imagine if he thought, well, now what my boy needs is just, just, he's just misunderstood. He just needs, he needs people that will understand him. Uh, He's, he's just got a lot of energy. He just needs open space where he can run around and not fall down and get shattered on the ground. He, just, he needs softer grass is what he needs. He just, he needs cushioning. That's, that's what he needs. The father knows what his boy needs is a savior. He needs a deliverer. I mean, I'm not saying, like, don't give your kids places to run around or don't, like, try to help your children, like, emotionally and psychologically, but don't not bring your kids to Jesus. Their hope, your, your children's hope is not that they would be better understood or that they could have a place to, to be free and to be themselves. They need Jesus. We need Jesus. You and I need Jesus. We need to recognize that we are, we are desperately Every aspect of our lives is desperately broken and ruined by the wickedness dwelling in us. We don't need to be better understood, and we don't need need excuses. We need a Savior who will have compassion when He looks at us, that He would save us, that He would help us. This is what our children need. This is what we need. We need to be healed, not heard. We need deliverance, not distractions, which brings us back to the reason Jesus came. 
lest his disciples get sidetracked by the transfiguration and the awesome display of his compassionate power to deliver. Jesus reminds them now a second time of why he came in verses 43 to 45. He says, says, while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's uh, in the Greek, it's, there's like a double use of you. Like Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, you, let these words sink into your ears. You, listen to me. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The first time Jesus announced that he was going to be, he announced that he was going to be rejected by uh, the elders and the chief priests and the scribes of the people of Israel, the people of God. Like their religious leaders are going to reject him. But this time he opens it up universally. The Son of Man is about to be handed, delivered into the hands of men, of mankind. It's not just, it's all of mankind will want Jesus crucified. It does raise the question, delivered by whom? Who is doing delivering? If, if there, he's being delivered into the hands of men, who's delivering him into the hands of men? And, and this is where, why we sang the song, how deep the Father's love for us. It is God the Father delivering his son into the hands of men. God the Father is at work in your salvation. It's the Father's plan. It's the Father's design. The Son is at work in your salvation. It's his, it's his obedience. It's his willingness to, to sacrifice himself for you in substitute of you. The Holy Spirit is at work in your salvation, uh, enlivening your dead heart that you might see and understand and, and repent and believe. What does it mean that, that they didn't understand? They did not, they did not understand this saying. Does it mean they didn't understand the sentence? I don't think it, it can't mean that. It's a pretty straightforward sentence. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's not a hard sentence. It's even in Greek, they all spoke Greek. They understood, even in Aramaic, which is probably what they were speaking at the time. It was, it was a very straightforward statement. I think it's more of a comprehension. Like, they couldn't comprehend that the Messiah that they just bore witness to on the mountain, the Messiah who just showed that he has power over the greatest evils of their time, that this Messiah is going to die, what would that accomplish? What purpose could that possibly serve? They didn't understand. Like, that doesn't make sense. I mean, yeah, it tells us like it was, it was concealed from them, and, and the and, Obviously, in the grand scheme of things, like, yes, it's God who's concealing it from them, but it's also their, their faithlessness, their misunderstanding, their own hearts, their weakness, their fears is keeping them from understanding. And above all of that, they're, they're afraid to even ask. They're afraid to ask because I think they just don't want any clarity on it. 
If we ask, he might make it clearer, and ignorance is bliss right now. But Jesus didn't come because of government oppression that was making life difficult. Jesus came because of a far worse oppression. They were oppressed by sin. You and I were oppressed by sin. We are faithless and twisted. We are oppressed and desperate because we're dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. I want to look one more time at this, the earthly father's love for his son. Again, this, this boy, and he's, he's some, at some age that you can refer to his childhood as something in the past. So, you know, teenager, young man, I don't know, because he says, like, this has been like this since his childhood. And this boy, this father loves his son, and it is not because of anything his son has to offer. His son has nothing to offer. His son is completely broken. He's completely oppressed. He's completely lost. And his father just loves him. He just wants him healed. And he knows that Jesus can heal him. Do you, do you understand how much your Father in Heaven loves you? Like, you were, you, you are this child, broken, oppressed, faithless, and twisted. You have nothing to offer Him. It's not because of how great you are, the potential he sees in you, but simply because you're his child. He loves you. And he knows that your only hope is Jesus. Not that Jesus would just speak a word and heal you, but that Jesus, the word of God, would, would die to save you. Like This is the love the Father has for you and for me, that he would send you, take you to his son, knowing what it would cost his son for your salvation. This is, this is, a, this is good news. This is worth being awed by the majesty of God, that he would use his glory to save us from our sin. It's, it's an amazing, amazing picture that we don't fear coming to God, that we, don't, that we can come to Him with everything and know that as He looks on us with compassion, He is with us. He is giving us the strength that we need to face whatever it is that He's brought to us giving us the church to, to care for and bear with each other and help each other. He's given us His Spirit to fill us. Like, He's not just awakened us to nothing, but He's filled us with His Spirit so that we are now alive in Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life we live now, we live for Christ 
who loves us and gave himself for us. Let's praise him. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for looking on us with compassion. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work you are doing in us. I pray that we would uh, trust you, that you would grant to us even just the smallest of faith, that we could trust you with our children, trust you with ourselves, trust you with the, the things that we are facing. Thank you for your compassion. That you see us, that you know us, and you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.